The following sermon is from Christ Church Port Orange. For more information, find us online at joinwithjesus.org. Thanks for listening. Okay, Luke chapter 14. Um, the sermon title this morning is Who is Worthy? Who is Worthy? Now we're going to get to Revelation chapter 5 where this question is asked. But before we get to Revelation chapter 5, I want us to look at Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. Uh, where Jesus calls this crowd together and then he describes what it's gonna take to follow him. Here's what it says in Luke 14, verse 25. Now, great crowds accompanied him and he turned to them and said, if anyone comes to me, and I just gotta stop right there because I love that Jesus always says anyone. Aren't you glad it's anyone? Aren't you glad it's not a group of people? Aren't you glad it's not a subgroup of humanity? Aren't you glad it's not only these people or only those people? Jesus presents a universal offer to anyone to come after him, and I'm grateful for that because I'm, I'm an anyone. I'm an anyone. He says, if anyone comes to me but does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. Does the word hate get under your skin a little bit right there? Well, it ought to in English because it's being used in a way that we don't use it in English, and yet we're using it in English. And so just in case you're wondering, this Mother's Day, you don't have to write your mom a card and say, I'm following Jesus now, so I hate you. Because <laughs> that's, that's not at all what the scripture means. Sometimes the scriptures say a thing but you have to understand what it's trying to say to you. Do you guys know this? Sometimes we only apply this rule when the scriptures are talking about what women can do in the church. Just thought I would throw that out there. Yes, no. What does it mean to hate one's own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters? And yes, even your own life. Unless you do this, you cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation, he's not able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him. How embarrassing. Saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. God, we thank you for your word that has been read in our hearing. We thank you that it has power to transform. Lord, there is nothing you cannot do. And you have decided in eternity past that you would bring all things from nothing simply by speaking. And so we know your word has power, power to create, power to transform, power to restore. So I pray, Lord God, that your words would fall on open ears and willing hearts. 
God, allow us the eyes of faith to see the world as it is and not merely as it appears. God, my heart goes out to you and I pray for every person in my hearing who is suffering right now, who is distracted and distraught by difficult and painful circumstances. Lord, our pain has a way of drawing our attention to its source and clouding out everything else. Lord, and I pray, especially in these moments that follow, God, that you would allow us to be undistracted from our suffering, that we might have a glimpse of what you are doing and the redemption that is found in your name. God, we want our lives to count for something. We want our We want our words and our thoughts and our feelings and our actions to make a difference in the world around us, in our marriages and families and businesses and communities and through the church. And so, Lord Jesus, have your way in us. Speak to us, we pray. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. You guys have noticed, um, maybe it's just me being in my 40s now, but have you noticed the uh, ever-increasing gap between generations and their experience on this earth? I don't know if this is part of like being in like a technological age, but like things are very different than they used to be. Like my youngest son, Julian, he doesn't understand a world where there is no Amazon Prime. You know what I mean? Like he thinks of a thing, it can be here tomorrow. That's, that's the world he lives in. I was trying to explain this to him because he wanted something, and um, I have the money to buy it for him, but I'm not going to because I'm a good dad, right? So I was trying to tell him no. He didn't understand why the answer was no. Like, I want the thing. The thing is available. It can be here tomorrow, and you have money. There's zero logic in his brain that should not say, like, get it here tomorrow. And so I'm trying to explain to him the reasons why waiting is good and saving is good and not giving ourselves everything we want right away is good. Don't we have a big task here helping out this next generation, this alpha generation? Yeah, and so... I sat him down and I said, Julian, you know, when I was a kid, you, you couldn't, this is when you sound like a dad, right? You couldn't, here's what I did. I had this catalog and I would circle things that I wanted for Christmas. Did you guys do that? Any of you guys have a little catalog? You circled the catalog and then I'd be like, and then you know what that would happen? My parents wouldn't buy any of that stuff for me. That's what would happen. Because they would wait till the day before Christmas Eve and go to Toys R Us and buy whatever was on the clearance, you know what I mean? If they didn't already find it at the Amvet store or Goodwill. That's what I got for Christmas, you know? So I can spoil you, but I'm not gonna, right? And so we had these conversations. And uh, last night we had dinner and Tiffany's mom came over and joined us. And so we got three generations at the table. And uh, man, the, the differences are glaring, you know, of our human experience. I'm not gonna pick it on, on anybody of a certain age today. Don't worry. But uh, we were having spaghetti, and Julian usually doesn't like red sauce. He usually eats his noodles plain, but he's growing up now, so he wanted red sauce. So I put some red sauce on his noodles. And then I had this thought, like, I better take off his shirt. You know, you guys? He's got a nice new shirt on. So I take, we get him to take his shirt off, because we know there's just going to be red sauce all right in this region. And um, so he takes the shirt off, and he's like, all right. He grabs the shirt, and he starts spinning the shirt. And I was like, bud, stop, just put this shirt down. And he goes, I'll put it down. And he throws the shirt. It goes up in the air and it comes straight down on top of my plate. <laughs> it was very quiet at the table for just a minute, you know? And so Tiffany handled like a champ. She can see he's on the verge of tears, like I've just ruined everything. And so she, that's all right, that's all right, that's all right. We can wash it, we can wash it. And so, of course, my mother-in-law, Alice, she starts talking about how 
All we need is some Dawn dish detergent, and that'll get it. Get it right now. And hot water or cold water? Is a spray and wash, or what do we use? And there were some you know, differences about how the stain should be treated. No one mentioned tonic water. No one was there that was that old. So, um, <laughs> It was funny, though. It was in this moment when Evie says, this reminds me of that commercial that she has to watch before she gets to her YouTube videos, and it's some like stain-out commercial, and everybody at the table had seen the commercial. And I was like, oh, the one thing we all have in common, advertising. <laughs> Doesn't matter what age you're in, they're still gonna get the advertising right in front of you, you know? And uh, we have this dilemma when we come to scriptures like uh, Revelation, uh, like Luke's gospel. I mean, Luke's gospel was written 2,000 years ago in a different country, in a different language, to different kinds of people. And it uses words that are actually harder for us to even understand, like the word hate, which I already mentioned. And the meaning, the answer that's kind of given to us in Luke 14, 25 to 35, this question of like, who is this Jesus who would say, you have to like, reject your mother and father and you have to renounce your own self and you have to take up your cross if you want to follow him. What, who is this guy? And what was it like to be there in that first century and to have Jesus in human flesh saying these things to you and then deciding that you're going to walk away from everything to follow after him? You see, John, the seer, later on in the first century, he gets this vision of Jesus a glorified, risen, enthroned Jesus. Um, and when you see him, the natural response is to lay everything down at his feet. And yet that was not the experience that the disciples of the first century were having when Jesus is on his earthly ministry. And in fact, that's similar to the difference we find ourselves in today. In all generations, we're sitting here living our own lives, taking time out of our schedules to go to church, to sing, to worship, to listen to the scriptures read, to try to apply some eternal truth to our lives to change for the better, anybody trying to do those things today? Uh, to get our kids in kids' ministry, some of you are here for just an hour of free daycare, it's fine. Um, and Jesus is calling for you to give up everything, to give him everything, to hold nothing back. Like, do you know Jesus like that? Do you see Jesus like that? So I thought, Luke 14, 25 to 35 presents for us this, this big ask from Jesus and really a high standard that's universally offered. Anybody that would come after me, he says, but this is what it's gonna cost you. What would be worth that? Who, who is worthy of that kind of response? And so I wanna take you to Revelation chapter four. And chapter four and five go together. They, I don't know why they're two chapters. They shouldn't necessarily be two, but they're two and they're both short. Uh, but chapter five won't make sense without chapter four, so let's just start reading in chapter four. Revelation four, starting in verse one. This is John having uh, communicated the seven letters to the seven churches, and now he's gonna be shifting gears as he's taken into the presence of God by an angel. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Scene shift. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. And at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven. You're gonna see the word throne like 14 times in these short verses. A throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders 
clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Now, let me stop you right there. If you've never read the whole rest of the Bible, then that would just seem like weird. Who are these, who are these creatures that look like these things? And you go, okay, there's an eagle, there's an ox, there's a man, there's a, what, what, what is going on here? But if you were a Jew in the first century, or if you were familiar at all with the Old Testament, these symbols would be very meaningful to you. And this vision of these living creatures would be very familiar to you because this is the vision of the throne room that Ezekiel had in Ezekiel chapter one also. And these four animals or figures, there's a man and an ox and, a, and an eagle and a lion. These were the symbols that were on the flags over the tribes of Israel that were grouped together from 12 into four. I don't know if you guys know this or not. If you go back to Numbers chapter two, God takes the 12 tribes in the wilderness and he groups them into groups of four and each of them have a tribe set over them, and the symbol of each of these tribes are these four living creatures. So you didn't know that, wouldn't be familiar, you'd be thinking, oh, random living creatures and weird animals. No, it's very meaningful. Every bit of this is painting a picture of us, and the picture is the presence of God. Remember, the tabernacle was at the center of the camp, and around the tabernacle on either side were the tribes, and each one of the tribes has a head tribe, and that head tribe is pictured by these animals. And this is a picture of the presence of God among his people in the wilderness. And it's a picture of the presence of God among his people. The golden lamp stands in chapter one, right today. He's always right here. And now we're given this heavenly vision of the throne room. And here are these living creatures reminding us that God is present in the midst of his people. And these living creatures, which are angelic beings that represent God's connection to creation and were imaged in the wilderness are crying out and they never cease to say, verse eight tells us, holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. If any preacher ever told you that heaven was gonna be one unending worship service and that scared you, don't worry. You, don't, you can stop singing. These angels will never stop singing. It's gonna be all right. Verse nine says, whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Stop. Now, I want to show you something here that maybe you didn't re realize. If you've never read chapter four and chapter five together, the four living creatures are crying out, holy, holy, holy. And then they are going to be joined by the worship of the elders. And they are going to add their worship to the four living creatures and they're going to say worthy. But there's one worthy. But before we get to the end of chapter five, there's going to be three worthies. So you're going to get holy, holy, holy and worthy, worthy, worthy. But this first worthy is connected to God as creator. And all of us have come into life recognizing 
um, that there is a creator. You guys can look around and recognize that everything that is exists and it's outside of you. You will come and you will go and this will all continue on without you. Do you understand this? That you are a created being and therefore you can know two things, that there is a God and you are not him. That's what you can know. And so it's in the heart of every human because God's placed eternity in our hearts to know that there is a God and that the knowledge of God is out there and his presence is clearly seen by what has been made. And so we ought to align our lives in worship to God because he is worthy, because he is the creator of all things. Do you see that baseline? I mean, this is the baseline of the whole book of Romans is going, everybody can tell there's a God. We ought to seek him, but instead we worship and run after other things. And that's the essence of broken humanity. It's idolatry that we would go after other things, that we would ignore the God who is and live our lives in other pursuits. But these elders in the presence of God honor him as worthy because he is the creator. But that's not all he is, and that's not all he's done. And that's where Revelation 5 gets really good. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll. Somebody say a scroll. A scroll. A scroll is a picture of God's revelation, God's plan, God's predetermined goals and purposes for humanity. And that scroll is rolled up and in his hand. It's written within and on the back and it's sealed with seven seals. And verse two says, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Here's the question for today's sermon title. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? Verse three, and no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. I love the tension of this moment. The plans of God are contained, restricted, held back. The purposes in the heart of God are held back and no one can bring them to fruition. There's no one worthy to open this scroll. Verse five. And then... One of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Is that good news or what? Now, if you're a Jew in the first century, every single one of those descriptors of King Jesus means something to you. The lion of the tribe of Judah goes all the way back to Genesis 49 and the blessing of Jacob over his sons and the fourth son of Leah, Judah. He said the scepter will not depart from him, that he's like a fierce lion ready to pounce on his prey. The messianic expectation that the king of the Jews would come through the line of Judah. And now we have this conquering king. King Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he's the root of David. He is both the source of David and the son of David. That's a quandary Jesus poses to the Pharisees. He says, oh, in Matthew 22, you gonna trick me publicly? They try over and over. The Sadducees try, fail. The Pharisees are like, suckers, now we're gonna get him. We beat the guy who beat the guys. We beat all the guys. And they try Jesus, fail. And then they get together and they try him a third time. They all fail. You can go back and read it. This is a great chapter. I preached it to the youth this past Wednesday. And then at the very end, Jesus goes, oh, let me ask you guys a question. The Messiah is David's son, right? Yeah. Well, why does David call him Lord? Mic drop. <laughs> After that, it says, and no one dared to ask him any more questions. <laughs> He's the root of David and the son of David. 
and he's conquered, and this is why he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Verse six, and between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw not a lion now, but a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, all powerful, and seven eyes, all seeing, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth, in the people of God and sent out into the earth. That's what we are. And when and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding up a harp and seven bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. You know, let incense arise, that song we sing. This is a picture of the prayers of the saints and the worship and the presence of God. And they sang a new song. You ready for your second worthy? Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals to fulfill the purposes of God for humanity. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. Isn't that good news? Do you guys know there's a throne in the new heaven and new earth for you? Did you know that you were made to rule and to reign? Did you know that there's so much more to this creation than you could ever even imagine? And you have been crafted in the image of God to reflect his glory and to bring about his rule and reign in his created realms for eternity. Some of you are like, I was just thinking about what I had to do on Tuesday. <laughs> and God's got a much bigger picture and a much bigger plan. And the only reason that can come to fruition is because there was one found worthy to open the scroll. And then I looked and I heard around the throne of the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads, thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And listen, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing, sevenfold worship. The fullness of worship is centered on the person of God expressed in the lion who is the lamb in the son of David, in the king of the universe, in Jesus, Messiah. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. I love this picture because it takes us into the realm where Jesus is being rightfully worshiped and where the fullness of God's plan and purpose for creation is fulfilled. Everything in creation is now oriented toward God, its creator, and Jesus, its redeemer, and the whole earth and the whole creation is all set right. And in that set right future is a place for you, a place for your song, a place for your judgment, a place for your rulership, a place for your vocation, a place for your life everlasting, and it's bigger and longer than anything you can imagine. And Jesus came, lived, died, was raised, and ascended so that he could bring you out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of life. Did you know that's the life you're living today? Did you know that's what you were welcomed into today? Did you know today you didn't just wake up with Christian being a box you check next to your race or your gender? You have been ransomed into the kingdom of God, and now your life exists to add your holy, holy, holy to those four living creatures and your worthy, worthy, worthy to the elders in heaven and those who have gone before us. Do you know that? That's where you're for. That's it. 
That's, where, that's the starting point of everything. And until you recognize this, you will never make sense of Jesus' high requirements for you to be a disciple and to come after him. Let's go back to Luke 14. Luke chapter 14. Because who would be worth this if it's not this risen Jesus, if it's not this lion that's the lamb, if it's not this conquering king? Jesus said to the great crowds that accompanied him in verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciples. Jesus is saying that the cost of discipleship, the cost of following him is number one, reordering your priorities. Reordering your priorities. When you come to meet Jesus, you have a network of humans that you have to navigate life through, and there are people that you give allegiance to. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's your children. Or if you are my age or younger, maybe it's to your every waking desire. I don't know. But all of us are living our lives uh, negotiating relationships. Are we not? Why do we say, if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy, right? Happy wife, happy, right. We say it because we, we recognize that we are living our lives in connection to other people. Now, the Jews in the first century, their allegiance was familial, it was patriarchal. And so it was to dad, it was to grandpa, it was to whoever the patriarch of the family was. And so you lived your life inside this honor-shame society where everything you did reflected on him. And Jesus broke that apart everywhere that he went. Over and over and over again, Jesus would have interactions with people and, and they would give him responses like, hey, when, once my father, remember Jesus, and this is I think back in Luke chapter 10 maybe, where someone, Jesus says, follow me. And he says, let me bury my father and then I will follow you. And Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. You're like, harsh, dude. You don't want him to go to the funeral? This is unbelievable. Who does this guy think he is? His dad wasn't dead. Let me bury my father is a way of saying, I'm gonna live my life honoring my father and my allegiance to him. And when he is gone and I am the head of the household, then I'm gonna take all of what we have and I'm gonna go in your direction. But because I'm, my father's not following you and I'm following him, once I've buried him, then I will follow you. That's what he was saying. And Jesus says, no. No, no, you're leaving death to walk in life. And so leave the dead to bury the dead. Let somebody else take that position you were in. Walk away from your inheritance. Walk away from your place in this family line and come after me. Do you see the difference? And this is what this idea of hate means in the Bible, love and hate. There's, there's, there's laws in Deuteronomy about a hated wife. So you can't, you, you have two wives. The, the, the Bible does not prescribe um, polygamy, by the way, just in case you were wondering. Um, polygamy has been a bad idea since the very beginning, right? And Lamech took two wives. Oh no, oh no. And that's, that's early in Genesis. But polygamy has been throughout the ancient Near East and the law is speaking into a world that exists and it's saying, listen, if you have two wives and one of them you dislike or you like less than the other one and she has your firstborn child, you can't give the firstborn right to the first son of your favorite wife. Do you see this? Now there's a lot of messy going on in there but the point is, the, but the point is, you, that's an injustice, and that's what the law is all about, pointing out in a society what justice and injustice looks like. And so love and hate, so you, you, you love Rachel, you hate Leah. It doesn't mean you hate her like with an emotion, emotional passion of hatred, and ugh, I hate that person. It means that you're, you cannot prefer, you can, you can only prefer one at a time. Do you understand this? This is why it's really a good idea to only have one wife. <laughs> Jesus is saying, in order for you to love me, you have to hate your father and mother means you can no longer 
obey them when they differ from me. Do you understand? And in fact, this is how all of your priorities are rearranged. Jesus becomes number one, and then he tells you what two and three and four and five and six are. A lot of times we want Jesus to be our wingman. We want him to be our co-pilot. We want him to be there to save us and to help us when we're in trouble, but we ignore him a lot of the time. And then we're telling him what's three and four and five and six. That is not being a disciple of Jesus. Being a disciple of Jesus requires you reordering your priorities. It also requires you reallocating your possessions. Look at verse 28, reallocating your possessions. For which of you desiring to build a tower, Jesus gives us two analogies, a tower and a war. Both are odd. I don't know, have you guys gone to war this year, any of you? Have you? No? You didn't crush any neighboring HOAs in battle? No? Nothing? And have any of you built a tower in your backyard, lookout tower for your vineyard? No. So these are obviously very obvious to a first century, but disconnected from us. Jesus is saying, don't start something you can't finish. Have you guys ever decided to try to mow the grass before the sun went down? And then it got too dark for you to finish and just put the mower away? And the next morning, you look like an idiot. You know, have you ever done that? Yeah. You know, when we were trying to build this new addition to the church, people would all the time say like, what? if we need something bigger, why don't we buy that building that's on the corner of Madeline and, and, and Williamson, right? This abandoned building. You guys, everybody knows the abandoned building there? Have any of you guys lived in Central Florida long enough to know what the I-4 eyesore is, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, there's something that we all can connect with about starting something you can't finish and no matter what the explanation for that is, it's an embarrassment to whoever was starting that project. Yes? Jesus says, you've got to know that you're all in. And this means you have to reallocate your possessions. It means everything you have has to be added. Jesus says, you can, you can beat an army of 20,000 with 10,000 if you have a geographical advantage, topographical advantage. If they're coming up a hill and you're coming down, you can get them two to one for sure. But if you don't have a strategy to get there by the time they get there, you're going down two to one. And so you, if you're gonna go all in, you gotta go all in on purpose and with forethought. Otherwise, you better just make yourself a deal while the deals can be had, Jesus says. And this means that we're supposed to recognize we have to do what it takes. I used to use this illustration when I would preach this about wanting a pool, and we have a pool. Um, but 10 years ago, I was preaching this, and we wanted a pool so bad. We were super poor. Like our whole, we had a little family of four at the time, and our total like household income was like under 50 grand. And we had a 2006 mortgage at 7% interest rate, which was like 45% of our income. So we had like no, no fun at all. Like you paid your bills and you had like eight bucks. And you're like, what am I gonna do with my eight bucks? Do you guys remember that? Did you go through that season? It was not fun. So uh, we were like, we could get a pool. And uh, we were waiting to refinance. Interest rates were going down. That was a fun thing. And um, so we were thinking we could refinance our house and get a pool. And uh, so we had a company come out and give us a quote to do a pool. And it was like $28,000. So this was back in 2010 money. And uh, so the... They give us the quote, and then they give us the price for 10 years, second mortgage, and they were like, here's the price. And at the time, it was like 300 bucks or something a month. And like that is like how much we were giving to the church at the time. And we didn't have any extra margin. And I remember us looking at that and going, could we get a pool? And the answer is yes, if we take this money that God had us giving over here and we put it over here. And so we were genuinely, we always were like, Lord, do you want us to have a pool? <laughs> I'm, I'm, it's really more of like a giant baptistry for all the, you know how we do the things to get the things that we want, you know? And we realize, no, like, if we're gonna honor God with, our, with what he's, the little that he's given to us, then the answer is no, no pool. And so we didn't get a pool. And so this is what reallocating your possessions looks like. It means like, hey, God, everything I have belongs to you. And I'm gonna, 
I'm gonna spend, everything I spend is spent for you, everything I save is saved for you, everything I give is give, give, given for you. Do you understand the difference here? It's all in, this is what Jesus is asking. And then lastly, we're called to reaffirm our purpose, reaffirm our purpose. Verse 34 transitions, uh, salt is good. Someday I just wanna preach just those three words. That would be, wouldn't that be a great sermon? Salt is good. We could just stop there and be like, go get french fries. God bless you, you know? <laughs> salt is good. Um, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? The question there is like, if you use salt to salt things, how do you salt salt? Do you, do you see the dilemma that's there? Now, we have no idea, because when you guys think of salt, you think bad for my heart and cheap. Is that what you think about when you think about salt? I need to lower my sodium intake, and I can go buy this much salt for 55 cents, right? Or I don't know what it is now. I haven't bought salt in a while. I still have a lot. But in the ancient Near East, salt was... Um, was a commodity, a very expensive commodity. And in fact, people were paid in salt. Did you guys know this? Did you know this is the, where the word salary comes from? Salarium, paid in salt. And so much of our English language and many different languages are, have S-A-L as a beginning of things that talk, salad, you guys know salad? You guys eat salad, anybody? Salad? Um, salchichon, salted meat, salami, any of these things ringing a bell? All things made with salt. And salt was valuable because salt was the only thing that was able to preserve meat. So you either killed it and ate it immediately or it went bad and rotted unless it was salted, in which case it was a preserving agent. And so it was a commodity and it was very expensive and it was a huge part of life for the first century. And Jesus says, if you have some salt, and salt doesn't like lose its saltiness, but he says, if you lose, your, if you lose its saltiness, then what are you gonna do to restore it? How do you salt the salt? He says, it's no good for anything. Now, a couple of things that, salt would be used for when it was um, going bad. If it was mixed with other additives, it would start to like, lose its, its um, saltiness. And they would throw it on the manure pile, which would keep some fermenting from happening, and it would keep giant piles of poo from exploding everywhere. Anybody grow up on a farm? Anybody ever seen an exploding pile of poo? No? Yeah. Not a good look on anyone. And so you put the salt on there. Jesus is saying, if salt loses its saltiness, it's not even good for that. You just throw it down on the ground and it's trampled underfoot. What is Jesus saying? He's calling disciples of Jesus to recognize and reaffirm our purpose. Do you guys realize that when you take the glory of being made in the image of God and the calling to be a preserving agent and a transformative agent of value, adding value and flavor, seasoning the world around you with God's grace and love and revelation, and you don't use it for that, and instead, you take those gifts and those callings and you just use them for your own purposes, where you are the king of your universe. You are the leader of your own life and your own heart. You are the decider of all things. You are the owner of your things, not merely a manager. Then you have lost your saltiness. You are no longer fulfilling your purpose. Jesus says, what good are you for? The very thing I made you to do on the earth made in my image to reflect and glorify me and fulfill my purposes and bring my righteous judgment into the earth, if you're not doing that, then you're good for nothing but to be thrown away. But the call is, come after me. Be my disciple. Learn from me and obey. Reaffirm your purpose. Reallocate your possessions and reorder your priorities. I don't know, um, you guys ever had your refrigerator go out? Is anybody suffering with that malady right now? Your refrigerator goes out. Always happens right after you go grocery shopping too, doesn't it? Has it ever gone out empty? 
No, no. Or you're on vacation, you come back, oh, that doesn't smell good. Salt was like the refrigerator, but how many of you ever like, your fridge went out and you bought a new fridge, but you just loved your old fridge so much? You just rolled it into the living room and you just filled it full of books or something, you know? None, none of you would do that. You take the doors off, you push it out to the road, it's gone in 13 minutes. Somebody with a scrap, scrapper truck comes by and takes your fridge, right? Jesus is saying the same thing. Will, will you be who God made you to be? See, it doesn't make sense to the world and it doesn't make sense to us when we're living our lives with us at the center. But when we have the revelation that John the seer had of Jesus, holy, 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 worthy because he's the creator of all things, worthy because he's the savior and the conqueror, and worthy because he's given up his life unto death that we might be restored, then, then what Jesus is inviting us into in Luke chapter 14 makes perfect sense. Yes, you are who you say you are, and I am who you say I am, and so the only natural thing would be for me to, to kneel down before you and say, you are worthy. You are the only one who is worthy to order my priorities. You are the only one who is wise enough and powerful enough and good enough to say, do this and don't do that. Save this and spend that and give here and live this way and invest this way and spend your time with these people and stop doing these things and to supply the power to do that. Do you understand? He's the only one. He's the only one who we can trust to go all in with. You know, sometimes Jesus will call you to just be super, super generous, generous till it hurts. Um, at the time in 2006 when we had uh, overpaid for our house and our interest rate was super high and we had very little uh, marginal income, it was really hard. And a lot of our friends kind of just stopped paying their mortgages and they started just saving all the money that they were paying on their mortgages with hopes that there would be some kind of like government bailout and some option for them to like repurchase their house or restructure their loan and they, they hoarded up a bunch of money. And I will tell you, no, I'm not judging you if you did that. It was like the common wisdom. But I didn't feel like in my conscience I could do that. I felt like I said I would pay this at the time to these terms, and the terms didn't change, the environment did. And that's, I can't control that, but it's not right for me to then do that. And so we didn't, we, paid, we made our mortgage payment every single month, month after month, year after year. We, we, we stayed in that house for 10 years and we wanted to move, we were, when beautiful homes that we would have loved to live in were dropping in price all over the place. We couldn't go anywhere, we were totally trapped down, and we didn't have a pool, just a dry backyard. But we were faithful. We just did what God told us to do. You know, something crazy happened. Um, we continued to grow in our income, and, and we moved into a bigger house. We eventually sold that house and broke even, so praise Jesus. We got off from underneath of that. We got to a place that suited our family, and um, we still wanted a pool. And so in 2020, we went to get a price to get a pool, and uh, the pool company came out, and they said, uh, here's the price to get a pool. And it was like $12,000 more than we could afford, which had grown since then, so we were like, oh, we still can't get a pool. And then uh, COVID happened. And every pool uh, project fell out because nobody wanted to spend the money on the pool. Did you know this? So the pool company calls us and they're like, do you want to still do your pool? And I said, yeah, we, we do, but we only have this much money. And so we got that stimulus money, you know, that government-sponsored inflation? That came in our... So I'm like, I can save this. It could be worth less every year or I can spend it. So I said, we can give you this amount of money, which was really low, and the stimulus money, and they put our pool in for $12,000 less than their quoted price. And we were able to refinance at 2.5%, shave 12 months or 12 years off of our mortgage, and our payment didn't move at all. Not at all. It cost us literally $0 to put a pool in and have our mortgage paid off 12 years 
Now, you cannot plan for that to happen. Did you know that? You see, but being faithful to follow Jesus, you'll never regret it. You'll never regret it. And he's capable of doing whatever he wants. Here's what he's looking for. Faithful in little, faithful in much. Are you living a life that says he's worthy? And so when you're faced with decisions, what does God want me to do? What does it look like for me to live this life this way? You're gonna ask your question, who's worthy? Is it me? Am I worthy to order all my priorities? Am I, am I worthy to be the one to decide about all my possessions? Am I worthy to be the one to define my own purpose? Or is there another who is worthy? One seated on the throne. One who gave it all and paid it all to make us his own. Who is worthy? Only one. And he is Jesus. Amen? If you're here today and you've never given your life over to Jesus, I don't know why you're in church today. I don't know what you're, why you're here, what you're thinking. But I'm telling you, the only way to live a real and full and whole and blessed life is to come to Jesus in repentance and faith. To recognize that you are a broken mess, but he can restore anything. My dad told me, can you fix it? Oh, you can fix anything if you've got the knowledge and the resources. And I'm telling you, there's only one who knows how to fix you and has paid the price so that you can be whole. And so I'm pleading with you, don't leave today as the Lord of your own life. Don't leave today as the one dictating your own purpose and your own value. Don't leave today trying to maintain control of what is really so far outside of your ability to take care of. Go all in towards Jesus. And you can do that with a simple prayer to just acknowledge him, say, God in heaven, I hear what you're saying from your word. A little bit that I know, I believe it. I need you. Please forgive my sins. Take my life and make me yours. And with a prayer like that, prayed in sincerity of heart, you'd be made new in a moment and your journey begins. Your journey, living a life that says, holy, 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 and worthy, worthy, worthy. And for the rest of us, we just need a reminder sometimes. We need a reminder to go, have I, have I taken control of my stuff again? Have I been the one ordering my, my own priorities? Have, have I been letting Jesus drive? Is he in the passenger seat or is he driving the ship? And so I'm gonna ask the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart and then I'm gonna ask you to go out from here being everything that God made you to be. Amen? Holy Spirit, we invite you into our hearts and minds. I pray that you would speak to us in our, in our inner being. Where there needs to be conviction, I pray that you would convict us. Or where there needs to be convincing, I pray that you would convince us. God, I pray that you would draw every person that you want to bring today outside from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light to make them with us a kingdom and priests unto God. Lord, I thank you for the freedom of walking in submission to you, in worship of you. God, I pray that my life and all of ours would say only you are worthy take our lives and be made great in this earth. In Jesus' mighty name, and all God's people said, amen, amen. Hey, our prayer teams are gonna be up here to pray with you, especially if you prayed that prayer to receive Christ today. We wanna pray with you and help get you resources to take your first steps in faith. They're gonna be right here. Don't leave without coming to let them pray for you. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for being here. We look forward to seeing you next Sunday.